Hey everyone, welcome back. If you could, come on in. If you're outside, please bring yourselves in. Let's go ahead, we're gonna get started in just a moment. And as I uh, told you before, if you wouldn't mind too terribly, if you're sitting in the middle, or the middle of your row, scooch in. Let's go ahead and, and sit next to somebody you don't know. That's, that's perfectly okay. Folks are gonna be coming in. We wanna make sure that, uh, that everybody has a seat to sit in. Oh, those lights are hot. All right, everybody, we're gonna be getting underway in just a moment. Please do make your way to your seats. If you don't have a seat, find a seat. If you need a seat and need somebody to scooch in, just ask them to move. All right, thank you, everybody. Please do go ahead and make your way to your seats. If you are lingering outside, like I see you right out there, come on in, please. We're gonna get underway. seats right up here on the left in the front there are a lot of seats right here on the right up in the front area please make your way in Thanks for making your way in. If you need a seat, there's a lot of seats to be found right up here in the fright, uh, in the front, yeah, in the fright, the front, right up here. Uh, there's also some seats to be had over here. And if you're sitting in the middle and there is a space next to you and it's not occupied, please scoot in. Make some room for everybody so we all have a chance to sit down and, uh, and participate. someone uh, happened to borrow a small black polka dot umbrella, my good friend Betsy would love to have it back because she's staying at the loft and uh, doesn't want to get wet. So if anyone happened to have, has a, uh, a black polka dot umbrella, small, that didn't belong to them, and uh, I guess I should give a shout out for Julia's notebook too. Anybody finds in their conference bag a purple notebook, 
uh, that doesn't have a name in it, please bring it back up to the third floor to the uh, registration desk. All right, guys, we're going to get underway right now. So I'd like to bring up to the stage uh, a friend of mine who is experiencing rain probably the, for the first time in months, Richard Tate from the California Wellness Foundation. Richard, I'm going to let you deal with the horrors here. Guys, come on in, please. Come on in. We're getting underway. Good afternoon. How are we doing? Our minds are full. Our pockets are full of business cards. Um, as Sean said, I'm Richard Tate, Vice President of Public Affairs at the California Wellness Foundation. And it's a real treat for me to introduce this keynote panel for a couple of reasons. Um, one, uh, very personal, which I want to start by sharing. Last year, at this event in San Diego, I was sitting out there in that audience. And like many of you, I was in a pretty good job at an organization that I actually really loved. But I really was looking for a challenge. I really wanted to take the next step in my career. And on this stage in San Diego, um, Sean convened a CEO panel of some really bright, smart CEOs who uh, were actually communicators themselves, communications professionals. How many of you remember that panel? So some of you may remember, it was a great panel. Judy Belk, Vice President, uh, or I'm sorry, President and CEO, my boss now at the California Wellness Foundation, sat on the stage and did a great job contributing to the discussion, but she also did something really smart. She said to a room of smart, thoughtful, sharp communicators, I'm gonna be hiring a Vice President of Public Affairs. If you wanna know about it, come talk to me. And I did. And a year later, I'm here as her Vice President of Public Affairs. So, Sean, yes. So earlier today, Sean encouraged us to really take advantage of the network, and it's here in this room. So those of you who are looking for opportunities, who are looking to be inspired, um, looking for new ideas, this is where it happens. Um, and I'm going to take this opportunity to say that next month I will be recruiting for a director of communications at the California Wellness Foundation. If you want to know about it, come and talk to me. Um, the second reason I'm really excited about introducing this panel in particular is because we are in Detroit, and this is a Detroit story. Um, it's a fantastic conversation between some really smart, thoughtful communicators who orchestrated something extraordinary, a collaboration that catalyzed real transformation here in the city. I'm not going to tell you too much. Um, it's called The Grand Bargain. How many of you heard of, have heard of The Grand Bargain? Okay. Well, some of you may have heard of the grand bargain, bargain, the myth of the grand bargain. We're going to pull back the curtain, and you're going to hear a little bit about what really happened and some of the communication strategies that really drove the change that we are witnessing today. So without further ado, I'm going to ask Stephen Henderson of the Detroit Free Press to come on up and the rest of our panelists, and they'll do introductions. Thank you. Enjoy. All right, good afternoon. Uh, my name is uh, Stephen Henderson. I am the editorial page editor at the Detroit Free Press here in Detroit. Uh, I also host uh, a daily radio show called Detroit Today on uh, WDET, which is the NPR affiliate here in Detroit. Uh, and I host two television shows on Detroit Public Television. So yes, I do have four jobs. Uh, <laughs> and I manage to keep all that straight most of the time. Uh, this panel uh, is convened to talk about 
something that is rather extraordinary in our history here in Detroit, in our recent history here in Detroit. Most of you probably know that uh, we went through a municipal bankruptcy a few years ago. Uh, and uh, as a result of that bankruptcy, a lot of the things that, that we hold dear uh, in this community were under some duress. Uh, the museum that you are going to later, the Detroit Institute of Arts, uh, is an asset uh, in, in a municipal bankruptcy that would have to be sort of reconciled some way. Uh, the pensioners, the people who work for our city uh, and then retire, uh, are another asset. Uh, essentially, the, the money that they were owed was an asset that had to be reconciled. And there was real threat to all of these uh, institutions and, and human beings. And in order to sort of make our way through that uh, to a place where those things were preserved uh, and uh, the city could go on to a brighter future, the, the nonprofit community, uh, a group of foundations, got together with a federal judge and came up with what we now call the grand bargain. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, injected into the bankruptcy process from the outside, from the nonprofit community, in order to save the art at the DIA, in order to make sure that pensioners didn't take the kind of draconian cuts that were on the table. Uh, obviously, this was an extraordinary act. Uh, there is nothing like it that I have ever seen or read about uh, in, the, in the world of uh, municipal finance or in the world of philanthropy. And so today, we're going to talk about how we messaged that process. How did we message the grand bargain? How did we sell the idea of the grand bargain? Uh, both inside philanthropy and externally uh, here in the community. Uh, and, and I figured I would start with a, a quick story about, uh, about something that happens to me about once a month. Uh, and it just happened to me two days ago. Uh, I, I wrote a column about, uh, I wrote a column about uh, public education here in the city. And uh, the sort of struggle that we have to provide quality public education to kids in Detroit. Uh, and, and the schools here are quite separate from city government. They're their own uh, institutions that are financed separately and managed through the state and local authorities. They don't have anything to do with, with city government. They didn't have anything to do with the bankruptcy. Uh, but I was talking to somebody uh, about that column, and he said to me, well, you know, if not for that grand bargain, if we would have been able to sell that art in that museum, think of all the things you could do for public education in the city of Detroit. And so I found myself messaging again mm -hmm. uh, three years after the bankruptcy, mm -hmm. uh, two years after uh, we've, we've got a new mayor and uh, uh, sort of a new path has been forged uh, for us to go forward. I found myself messaging again about why this made sense. Why did this, why did this have to happen for the city of Detroit to thrive? And how could I sort of justify uh, doing that when we have schools that don't have uh, toilet paper or uh, classroom materials? And so uh, I, I think it's a good way to, to sort of introduce the idea that this was, this was a very difficult thing to talk about and to get people on board with. And it remains a, 
a topic that's very difficult to talk about and to defend, and we have to keep doing it all the time. And I say we, uh, in the, and when I say we, I'm speaking in the sort of grand sense of we as Detroiters, as, uh, as Metro Detroiters. Of course, I'm a member of the press, quite separate from philanthropy, quite separate from city government. But during the bankruptcy, I think there was a real call that we all felt uh, to advocate uh, very strongly on behalf of the city, on behalf of the people who live here. Uh, and I think I was as much a, a part of that, or I felt as much of that obligation as, as anybody else did. And so what we want to talk about uh, this hour is how, uh, how the grand bargain was messaged. How was this sold? How, did it, how do you convince uh, uh, boards of nonprofits to, to spend money in this way? It's not the typical way they spend it. How do you convince uh, the people of a city that this is the way forward uh, to preserve art and to preserve pensions uh, at the expense of some other things? So uh, joining us to talk about that uh, are to my left, my immediate left, Rip Rapson, president and CEO of the Kresge Foundation, which is uh, located here in Detroit. Uh, next to him is Tanya Allen. She's the president and CEO of the Skillman Foundation, uh, another foundation here in the city of Detroit. Next to her is Ryan Friedrichs. He works for the city of De Detroit now uh, and as is part of the development uh, efforts here in the city of Detroit. And next to him is Andrew Sherry, who's the vice president for communications at the Knight Foundation. Uh, all of these entities were deeply involved, of course, in uh, the grand bargain. So, uh, Rip, I'm going to start with you. Hmm. Um, because you're sitting right next to me. Mm. <laughs> That'll teach me. Uh, that's right. Uh, I, I feel like you and I have had this conversation a million times uh, in the last three years. Uh, but, but I want you to share with, with people here what the reaction was when you first went to your board and said, hey, hmm. we're going to put $100 million into, uh, into the bankruptcy in Detroit. Uh, I, I have always sort of imagined <laughs> what the looks on their faces were and what four-letter words were, might have been uttered in that room. Oh, no, oh, no you haven't. <laughs> <At the time. laughs> uh, but, but I think that's a good place to start. What was the, that internal messaging that you had to do? How did you even start that? Well, maybe what I, I could do, if you, if, if you wouldn't mind, Stephen, yeah. is sort of roll the tape back a little bit because how it came to the board was affected to how it was shaped. And um, Stephen mentioned that a federal judge was actually appointed to serve as the mediator in the grand bargain to try to work out all of the long-term health and pension issues, the creditor claims, um, the, the balancing of the city's financial assets. I mean, it was a very complicated deal. He happened to be my old uh, tennis partner of 40 years, uh, Jerry Rosen. And I got a call from Judge Rosen um, he had asked that all of the foundations kind of get gathered up in a room and talk about an idea he had to help expedite the bankruptcy's conclusion. Um, I couldn't go, and he said, would you, would you be willing to come before that meeting and just sort of cue me into what some of the pressure points might be with your colleagues? So he and I went out f to dinner, and he sort of laid out this uh, idea uh, that you know, in order to avoid long-term litigation over the pensions or long-term litigation over whether the art was held in the public trust, which would have just mired the city for a decade. Um, he wanted to create something he called the art trust. And the art trust would be this collective infusion of capital that would be sufficient to both 
sort of take the DIA back into true nonprofit status and, and to protect the pensioners from deep cuts. And I said, well, that's fine, but I suppose. Um, but um, what, what are you looking at? And he said, oh, I don't know, somewhere between 500 and a billion dollars. And I said, from philanthropy? And he said, well, that was sort of my idea. And, um, and, uh, and I think my reaction to him was a little bit the board's reaction to, to the idea. But I think the, the, the point I want to make is that he had, met, he had sort of developed a frame around this that I think ultimately uh, he came to realize was not right. And I, and I basically said back to him, I said, Judge, if, if you frame this as an art trust, it's all about art at the sake of pensioners, pensioners at the sake of creditors. I mean, it's sort of pitting everybody against one another, and it's a complete no-win situation. I said, you can aggregate capital, but it's got to be in service of expediting the bankruptcy, permitting the city to get out of bankruptcy as expeditiously as it can so that we can go back to the task of community building, which I think was in many ways well underway. We, I think, had made enormous progress in the city on a number of fronts uh, despite the bankruptcy. And I said, that really has got to be the message. And to, and to the judge's enormous credit, I think he got that right away. And that actually became the discipline message from there on out. Uh, and we can talk, if you'd like, Stephen, a little bit later about how we sort of adhered to that message. But there was a very quick agreement um, out of the foundation community, out of the mediators, out of the, uh, the emergency manager, Kevin Orr, out of the mayor's about out of everyone, that that had to be the message. And so when I went to, sorry, long way to answer your question. Okay. <laughs> when I went to the board, um, trying to sell our intervention in pension stabilization or our intervention in stabilization of a cultural asset, I think would not have worked. I mean, it just simply uh, would not have worked. It's just too out of our wheelhouse. But helping the community to move forward in a, in a uh, expeditious, consensual, constructive way and not get mired in years and years of sort of blackness and darkness around who owes whom what and who's going to pay how, um, I think the board kind of got that right away. And it was, I mean, it was after a lot of conversations with the Knight Foundation and with, um, with the Ford Foundation and with others. But, but I think in many ways, the conversation with the board took all of about 15 minutes. I mean, it was very quick because it was so abundantly clear that if you message along the lines, and not just message, if you actually behave along the lines of really moving the community forward out of bankruptcy into better ground, uh, that was something our board could get their hands around quite yeah. quickly. Yeah. Uh, Tanya, the Skillman uh, spends a lot of its time thinking about children here in the city of Detroit and thinking about schools, uh, you, your most active area, at least from my chair, is in the, the area of trying to, to rethink education and educational opportunities for kids. Grand Bargain's a pretty far, uh, far uh, flung idea from that. Um, talk about how you were able to sort of message in a way that made this work. Yeah, so that's really an interesting question. So let me just tell you first off, um, we actually didn't come into the grand bargain in the initial agreement. We ended up supporting it um, secondarily. And the reason we did 
was quite honestly, so uh, Rip, you say that he got the messaging quickly. Actually, he didn't, because <laughs> when it came to us, it was really about an art trust, about how we preserve the, uh, this institution, which we all valued as a foundation and invested quite a bit of resources in it. But we had to sit and um, really debate the issue about whether we were gonna take dollars for, away from children and put it into a municipal um, financing package that would help with the bankruptcy. And ultimately, our board said, it's more important for us to stay on mission and to stay focused on the work that we would do, uh, that we were doing. Uh, and so we actually initially opted out of the grand bargain. Now, we later came into the grand bargain uh, after, quite honestly, um, much of the um, negotiation around uh, the museum and the art uh, was accomplished. And then we did get to this place where we talked about how do we expedite the bankruptcy. And then when we got to that place, I was able to bring it back to our board uh, to talk about how important that is for the foundation, um, that we have a stabilized environment in which we could work. Uh, and that uh, out of this bankruptcy, we had a plan of adjustment that really translated into real impact on the ground in neighborhoods where children lived, and that became extraordinarily important to us too. So our investment was mostly, uh, when we came in, it was really about helping the retirees uh, and helping them with healthcare costs because part of the agreement that came out of the uh, grand bargain and out of the kind of, not the grand bargain per se, um, but out of the bankruptcy was that uh, many of the pensioners uh, were, they would receive um, healthcare, but no one in their families would. And so when we started to survey uh, many of the pensioners, there were lots of children who were uh, receiving health care who were now being cut off of that assistance. And so it was really important to us that we made sure that children um, in some ways were held harmless and through this negotiation uh, uh, around the bankruptcy. And so that's how we came to make an investment in it. Um, and so I think, you know, quite honestly, let's just be real about it. I think my colleagues probably were like, those damn Skillman people are so contrary. And, uh, and we are. Uh, we do what we think is right. We don't follow just to follow. Um, and uh, in that first part of the narrative just didn't feel right for us um, as an institution because we felt like, one, it was, it, it created a couple of tensions that we, really wanted, we weren't comfortable with, and we didn't feel like we were really struggling uh, through in a, um, at that time in a, uh, in, a, in a way that we felt like there was real voice to that, and that was one, that our pensioners um, with the grand bargain were pretty much cornered into um, making a deal on this and not really having an opportunity to, to fight it out and figure out what was the right right solution for them. And then too, we really were debating around this issue of people versus art. Uh, I love art just like the next person, um, but in a time when we're the poorest big city in the United States, it was a real question that we had to struggle through. Um, and, uh, and we did it in our own boardroom, not necessarily with the totality of the group because we did not want to um, uh, disrupt the process because we thought if others wanted to do it, it was a good thing for the city, even if it wasn't necessarily a good thing for us initially. Uh, Ryan, the, the, the bankruptcy, I've described the bankruptcy as, 
as literally a low point for us in the history of the city of Detroit. I mean, you, you don't get any, any worse from a financial perspective than the fact that you're bankrupt, that uh, you don't have enough money, you're not generating enough money to pay your bills. Uh, but, but it struck me that one of the things that the city had to, had to message during the bankruptcy, certainly during the grand bargain, was the idea that there was hope on the other side yeah. of this low point, that, that the city was not just going to survive uh, and continue to sort of stumble through, but that it would get to a place of, uh, of more optimism, that it would get to a place uh, of more hope. Uh, talk about how you sell that, though, to people who are living through it uh, yeah. and, and not, seeing, uh, not seeing all that hope, all that much hope uh, in front of them. To context that I entered this picture even further um, into it than, than Skillman did. My role at the city uh, of a chief development officer was literally created by the grand bargain and it was part of the city's plan of adjustment um, that uh, Tanya just re uh, referenced. That plan of adjustment is exactly what Stephen said. The idea in the plan of adjustment is to right-size city services focusing on the neighborhoods. Um, so the massive investment in the first year and a half of the administration was light lights in the city. Half of the city's street lights were out at the time. Um, a commitment to put 65,000 new street lights into the city starting in the neighborhoods. Um, trying to make that, that statement clear that that's where the priority and that's where the resources, that's where this reset um, was going to put the focus as well as redirecting the TARP funds. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars in federal investment uh, to help the city recover from the foreclosure crisis which had rocked the, the city and still people are still reeling from it that that was going to go in a focused way um, to what has become if it's not already now the largest anti-blight uh, program in the history of the United States with um, over 10,500 uh, abandoned homes being taken down in neighborhoods and the sort of lights and blights as I think about it um, as well as focusing on city services that neighbors you'd hear about at any community meeting um, and that was Stevens talked about in his show with the police chief and others uh, upwards of 45 and even closer to an hour sometimes that had been documented response times of, of uh, 911 calls for police EMS response times and so the focus was um, as many of these folks know, uh, a rigorous uh, attention every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. in Cabinet to a big board of metrics that track the quality of those extremely important life experiences in neighborhoods measured to the second. You'd see in Cabinet, you know, a, a bright red number that you're supposed to hit, a 10 for probably every department director, measured to the second from what the national standard is. If it's an eight-minute response time from police, if it's a uh, you know, response times for ambulances, for, for EMS, for fire, uh, for potholes being fixed, and onward and onward. That is the, the attempt in terms of the messaging uh, to Stephen's question about the neighborhoods and the quality of life being the focus of every department, of every um, cabinet meeting, and that we felt these downtown and midtown and some of the business were taking care of themselves, but that's where we were going to put those resources and that. Um, was what the plan of adjustment was guiding those resources to do first and foremost and the plan of adjustment it, it was frustrating in some ways from my role because the grand bargain gave the impression in some ways that a lot of the city's um, uh, problems had been wiped out when in fact only 
the seven billion in debt obligations was wiped out. All the problems that have been there for decades, the intractable difficult problems remain, absolutely so. But when you start to have this discussion, which was really my role with a lot of the players in the grand bargain about what is the next, and a lot of the players who were interested and wanted to be part of Detroit story, perhaps a lot of your foundations, looking in saying, okay, how do we engage? How do we become part of this really interesting moment in Detroit's history? There was certainly a translation moment of telling uh, the story of the grand bargain, doing a very specific piece of work, eliminating the city's debt, and really just opening an, op an opportunity psychologically to reset and for the city to be optimistic, um, but to be very real about how profoundly far we needed to go, especially on education, especially on health disparities, some of these needles that are still not yet moving uh, as a lot of the other ones are starting to move. So like that honesty, that transparency. And the last thing I'll mention is when the mayor had a state of the city address earlier this year, and we'd found that the actuarial charts that were measuring uh, the, the death um, and the life expectancy rates were off, and there was gonna be a, a $83 million increase to our first payment uh, in 2024 of those pension obligations from 111,000 or so, or 111 million, all the way up to 193 million, it was to be transparent about that, to lay it all on the table, to not try and do anything we've done before of trying to solve it, but say, here, this is where we're at, this is why we think we're here, and this is what we're gonna try and do to fix it. So trying to be transparent, trying to really focus what every what dime we had and the focus of the departments we had on neighborhoods, um, that was the strategy uh, when I first uh, came in, which is late 14, early 2015. Yeah. Go ahead, Rip. I, I'm sorry, Andrew, I don't mean to get, get in front of you, but I just think it's important to, to level set just a bit because um, the bankruptcy was actually three things, and I think Ryan talked about two of them. Um, the bankruptcy first was the amelioration of long-term debt obligations, health, pension, creditor issues. Um, the second was the restabilization and expansion of, of city services and the plan of adjustment in many ways was sort of geared at that. But the bankruptcy judge, Stephen Rhodes, was absolutely clear that you could solve the first and the second and he still would not approve the bankruptcy if it wasn't apparent that there were the long-term building blocks in place for the city's renewal and growth. And most of the bankruptcy trial focused on that third peace. He was pretty clear that you could essentially, through the skill of, of the mayor and, and others, figure out the city services piece. He knew that Judge Rosen and Kevin Orr, the emergency manager, had, through the grand bargain, been able to sort of modulate the long-term debt obligations. But he wasn't at all clear that education systems, neighborhood systems, um, transit systems, just the, sort of the engines of growth were in place. And so he actually segregated the last part of the bankruptcy trial for a number of folks to come in and talk about those sort of building blocks. And I think one of the, the messaging challenges, I think that Ryan absolutely is right to point out, is that there actually had been in many dimensions of, of uh, Detroit's life, um, real progress in the preceding five or six years. I mean, there were still huge issues. Uh, in, in every nook and cranny of the community. But in many ways, we had put in place a number of things that I think at the end of the day, the judge explicitly in his order said he believed were sufficient to sort of provide the building blocks for the city's long-term health. And so when we messaged about not just the grand bargain, but about Detroit, I think it was really important not to say that we just sort of hit this aha moment that we flipped the script on city services, we flipped the script on, on debt remediation, but what we 
ignore, I think, in that process, or run the risk of ignoring in that process, is the fact that this, over the last eight or nine years, has been a community that has worked really hard to put in place the kind of the basic elements of an improved civic life. Right, and what I would just add to that, though, Rip, that I think is really important, is that what I think the bankruptcy actually did for our city was to really create this um, um, a memory of success in our community that we were able to build off of. Um, and that memory, for me, um, included, I think, an important civic action by philanthropy and so many others. And I think what's amazing about that is that you know, we all are trying to use and uh, make sure that that civic muscle isn't atrophied, it, that it actually is being used, that it's getting stronger, that we're using it as a community to try and tackle some of the toughest issues that we face. Um, and so one of the things that came right out of that for me was like, okay, now that we've got that done, what do we do around education? Sure. Uh, and so part of it was to try, what I, we ended up doing was equipping and building this coalition of um, civic leaders across the board um, from pretty conservative um, business guys to very uh, liberal ministers and everybody in between, including parents, et cetera. And the reason I'm putting this forward be is because that would not have probably been possible if we had not had the success of the bankruptcy under our belt and people feeling like they were able to get something accomplished. And as a result of that, we surely didn't get all of the things that we wanted in the work that we were trying to do as we were taking it to the legislature. But we got twice the money that the grand bargain got from the state <laughs> to be able to do that work uh, without putting a private dollar in. And I think that it has to be about getting that civic muscle. And I think that's going to be the real legacy of um, the bankruptcy for our city is that we know how to do tough things in Detroit. We're resilient and we can get it done. And you know, we will put it before us and we will work until we can fix it. Yeah. You know, I think that's a terrific yeah. point, but I, I would only <laughs> say that then you back it up because the grand bargain would not have happened had we not done the collective work on the new economy initiative, on the light rail project, on the land use project, on excellent schools Detroit. I mean, I think what tends to I just think there is a sort of, um, sort of sense that this sort of just dropped into, right, the, right. into the water system and somehow all of a sudden foundations figured out how to collaborate when I think in fact we had been building that muscle. But I absolutely agree with Tanya yeah. for the big citizen-wide, civic-wide issues. So, so, Rip, you mentioned this before. And I'm Andrew, gonna get I'm to, sorry. Get to Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to uh, Andrew, <laughs> part of the messaging, part of the, the Part of what was remarkable about the messaging around this was the discipline uh, mm -hmm. of, of the message. There was one sort of unified message from mm -hmm. all of these different uh, interests uh, trying to, to make it clear that this had to happen. And, and I will make an admission, I was one of the very first skeptics uh, about the grand bargain when I heard about mm -hmm. it. Uh, when I heard that this judge was asking all of these uh, foundation heads to, to come to Detroit, we knew about it even uh, at that point at the newspaper. And our position at that point was, you cannot touch pensions. You absolutely should not touch pensions at all. Pensioners should not be made to, uh, to suffer any sacrifice. Uh, and so it really took, you know, uh, it, it did take that messaging to bring us around, uh, in the media uh, and, and uh, of course lots of other stakeholders, but talk about how disciplined that message was and why that was, why that was the plan and, and why it worked. 
Sure. I mean, first, listen, I don't mind waiting to speak because I'm the only one here who's not from Detroit. Yeah, so I was going to say. Don't speak until you're spoken <laughs> Sorry. to. Okay. Sorry. But, uh, you know, I mean, just going back one step before that, because that's a really, really interesting issue. But, you know, I mean, big picture for foundations to help Detroit during bankruptcy was both completely logical because if the bankruptcy dragged out for 10 years of litigation, finding, fighting over you know, very limited assets, then everything that we are trying to do in the city would be like swimming up a waterfall. So it's logical. But at the same time, it was completely unprecedented for foundations and very risky from a uh, point of view of what foundations typically do. So you know, the first step for us was to get approval from our board. That actually turned out not to be difficult, and actually a story really had a huge part to do with that. Um, we had happened to have our annual uh, September board meeting in Detroit not long after the bankruptcy was filed, and then when the request came through to participate, our president uh, asked, asked the board for $20 million to participate in this, in this effort. And um, Beverly Knight Olson, who is the daughter of uh, Jim Knight and the niece of Jack Knight, um, you know, the newspaper men who founded the Knight Foundation, she stood up and she said, my uncle loves Detroit. The free press was his newspaper. I think we should give them more. And people were just like stunned, and then they voted $30 million, $10 million more than was asked. So, you know, again, talk about the power of storytelling in that. Now, it was a very, very different storytelling challenge when you actually talk about communicating with the public. So the mechanism that we all set up together actually was a Sunday afternoon call for several, many, many weeks in a row involving just the foundation presidents and their heads of communication and our PR firm, uh, Berlin Rosen. And, um, you know, I think Berlin Rosen, you know, they really guide us, guided us and treated it as really kind of a, a classic crisis communication moment. But one thing I saw, you know, because the, the, the messaging, it wasn't just a question, obviously the art versus pension one is, is the really, really sensitive part of the messaging. But the other thing is, you know, foundations don't actually, traditionally have not done what all of you guys are here for, right? Because everybody who's here recognizes the power of communications to advance social change. But traditionally, until recently, all, in most of their history, all foundations wanted to do was not have anybody write anything bad about them, and their instincts were very, very, um, <laughs> Uh, defensive. And I do remember in some of the early calls of some people raising like, well, you know, what if, you know, every muni bankrupt municipality in the United States comes and asks us for money, or what if this goes wrong, what about liability and stuff like that. And it was in those forums that we worked out. It's like, look, even if you're talking about crisis communications, you don't put your head in the ground. You need a positive message, and then you need message discipline. And the positive message that did emerge is the one, you know, the rap referred to as the, at the beginning is like, look, this is all about helping the city of Detroit move through bankruptcy faster. And that essentially was the key message. There are some little, you know, little variations on it, and we stuck to that. And, um, you know, it was, a, uh, it was a very disciplined group. I mean, I have to, you know, I have to, you know, ha hats off to Berlin Rosen. I think Alex Edwards, who was one of the people who worked on it, is here at the conference today. Um, they, they did help us keep, you know, keep uh, on message, but there was incredible uh, message discipline and I'd say, you know, a relative absence of ego from, you know, foundation presidents who were, you know, each one is used to being, I mean, 
<laughs> Foundation presidents generally you can say that are I used want. to being in the spotlight by themselves, and to work together in the way that this group did, and stay and not, you know, and not do inter separate interviews, you know, was was very very important. And when different people did talk, we made sure that the spotlight shone on a lot of different types of groups, whether it's the Community Foundation of Southeast Michigan, whether it's the Ford Foundation, who, whose president Darren Walker played a major leading role in this, or, or other groups on the ground, to give kind of the message that like this is something that everybody has a place uh, to be part of. Yeah, go ahead, Rick. I was just going to um, reinforce just a, a point that, that Andrew made is that um, it was really clear from the outset that the communications work needed to be sort of led from one perch. Uh, that as thoughtful as Andrew and our folks and everyone else's folks were, that we really needed to sort of invest in a single, single platform. And, and what I think is not often said is how important the Ford Foundation was to that. It, it wasn't just that um, Darren was sort of a, a dynamic leader, he was, but there are three things going on here. Uh, one is that Darren was just new to Ford this was a huge wade into a potentially very difficult situation. The Ford Foundation had been accused by many in, uh, in Detroit for essentially, uh, from Detroit, essentially as abandoning Detroit, moving their headquarters to New York. There was a, a fraught relationship. So Darren's new on the scene, wants to reset that table, and boy, he better get this one right because this is about as high visibility as it gets. Second, um, Ford's communications group was led by Maria, uh, Marta Tolado, who is just superbly gifted. And for any of those of you who have worked with her, that the strength of her sort of clarity, calm, and sort of equanimity in this, you can't overstate. She was so good. I mean, we would all sort of pop up and down and want to do one thing or another, and, and, and Marta was really good about kind of keeping us on message. But then Berlin Rosen ended up actually being the sort of the huge uh, silver bullet in this because there was actually no question that we would do what Berlin Rosen asked us to do. It became very powerful. And so the, the combination of, of sort of Ford's internal expertise and their outside connection with Berlin Rosen became really important in making sure that there was a sort of a, a unity and a coherence and a consistency to the communication. You know, I think that the communications team did an extraordinarily wonderful job, and I have to tell you, because we came in on the second um, leg of this, we benefited greatly from it. But I also would like to just note a couple of, because uh, we, we, all we had to do was nod our head and smile and look pretty. I know how to do that. Uh, <laughs> um, but I would say there were a couple consequences or things that we didn't, at least for me, I don't feel like we really were able to deal with in, 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 a, in a strong enough way. So I think the first is, is that um, we were communicating to the media, to thought leaders, policy members, um, influencers, um, but we were not communicating to the people who lived in the city of Detroit, and nor were we really communicating to the pensioners. So the flip side of that is uh, I was jokingly telling someone this story when um, last year uh, Rip and I and a couple other people who were related to the Grand Bargain had gotten um, the Michiganian of a year award. Um, Rip and others related to Grand Bargain and I was related to education. Uh, my mother-in-law, who was a pensioner, 
was literally shooting daggers at him, <laughs> at everybody that went up there, mm -hmm. celebrating that you solved that, um, uh, that we solved the financial crisis for the city, yet you created financial crises for hundreds and thousands of pension, not hundred thousand, thousands of pensioners um, throughout our city and throughout the region. And I do not think that we've done a good job of that. I actually think that what the um, resonance from that is that we have people in our community who actually view uh, foundations who have put investment uh, in, in the city over necessarily investment in them. I don't think that that narrative is right but we haven't solved for that narrative. We haven't dealt with it, and I think that it is lingering, and I do think that there's a cloud around philanthropy for many of average people who are under trying to figure out how do these really wealthy institutions get to do that? How do they get to play a role in this uh, when, you know, really they didn't have much of a role or responsibility to be in the negotiations of such really complex work? Um, and then I think, think the second is, is that it, we often talk very little about is that part of the reason you think that this whole thing about the grand bargain is, you know, of course not. I, you know, Stephen talked about like this notion of like you, you get asked, Rip said it, you asked, he asked you for $500 million to a billion dollars. You're like, what? That's not what philanthropy traditionally does. Um, we don't, we, you know, it's this unwritten rule that philanthropy doesn't back stop government because we don't have enough money to do it. But that's essentially what the grand bargain is. We back stop, stop government in a lot of ways. Uh, and then the legacy of that is that government now believes that we should backstop government. And it's not just in Detroit, it's across the country. I mean, I'm sure RIP has gotten calls. I get calls all the time from colleagues who are saying that people have come to them and said, can't you do what they did in Detroit? Uh, when I was working on education in Lansing, uh, when I told them that we weren't, there was no grand bargain for the state's responsibility in education, they got so mad at me, they sent out two press releases. I'm the only foundation president in the, <laughs> in the state of Michigan that has had press releases put out on them from the state legislators. Now, you can just imagine what I think about those state legislators. I'm not gonna say it, because the last time I did, Stephen got me in trouble. She said it, she said it on my radio show one day, and uh, I got a quick call it. from... Uh, uh, <laughs> I did say it on the radio, and... Uh, Okay, I'm going to stop because I'm going to get myself in trouble again. You can go ahead and say it again. That's all right. That's good. <laughs> I'm not enamored with them. That's yeah. the politically correct statement. Uh, and so I would just say that we have that legacy um, right now that um, we have to deal with constantly as we deal with these tough issues that um, even though, you know, I talked to Darren about this, Darren is like, we told them that this was a once in a lifetime thing. I was like, they don't care what you tell them, yeah. it's yeah. what you do, and right? That, like every, I always learn every grant is a precedent. <laughs> you set a precedent every time you do it. And so I think that um, in a lot of ways, un I wouldn't say unwittingly, because I think it was the right thing to do, we set a precedent that I think our field is going to have to fight and so, deal with for a really long time. So talk about how you deal with that. I mean, and, and you know, I am sort of in the middle of that conversation as well with people about, you know, you, you, you wander around this city, you go to the neighborhoods and you see the things that people don't have, the things that, that are not being done, and they are basic 
government services in some cases. And the question is, you know, the city doesn't have the money and is not going to have the money anytime soon to, to provide those things in any meaningful way. And I'm not talking about lights and police. We are back to that level uh, of, of service. But I'm talking about uh, the kinds of things that, that really move people's lives forward. Uh, and we just don't have the resources to do it. So how do you message this idea that the government's not coming to help, but philanthropy, which has the money, uh, is also not going to do it, right? I, I would Go just ahead. say, you know, the way we think about it at the city now and trying to think mm -hmm. of this in a healthy way is there, Tanya's right, there's not enough foundation money on earth to move these needles uh, in a real way. And what a healthy relationship is, is more of a, like the historic relationships that have been successful, which is foundations with highly risky capital doing innovative work that can do a proof of concept, then public money can, can come in and take the scale in a major way. And working in concert to explore those spaces and also try to leverage in with very smart, focused uh, private investments, very large um, federal funds um, that can really move the needle is, 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 is a relationship I think we're trying to move toward and back into. Um, I would also just lift up one element of complexity here that I think really deserves before we move maybe to, to the future more, and that's the emergency manager law. And that a lot of times this is hard to delink in some people's minds from a, a very controversial set of laws and how they've played out specifically in the African American communities in Michigan as a state. And so one of the interesting moments, I think, for Detroit in coming through the grand bargain was, one, the relationships that were needed to make this work on the government side between a Republican governor, a Democratic uh, mayor who was sort of assuming semi-powers uh, as they stepped down the emergency management in the city, as well as uh, a city council that was newly elected to a district format. And historically, a lot of those relationships had not worked together very well. And I think one, it is fundamentally important to understanding the momentum that Detroit has started to get is, is it's, it's critical that those entities at least have, there's, there's always going to be healthy uh, work back and forth, but the fact that there was some, I think Steve, when anybody who's been in Detroit would admit, some uniquely collaborative moments over a large stretch of time between those bodies made a very big difference. And that level of collaboration, not just on the communication or messaging front, which is maybe part of it, talking about the, the grand bargain itself, but around moving forward is really, really important and how that stays together as we focus on this sort of chronic, the deeper problems sure. now of education, public safety, and, and that for is really, really important. But anyway, I want to lift up the emergency manager law because a lot of the yeah. calls I hear you take and others, yeah. those will slip together sometimes and it's still in sure. people's minds, especially neighborhoods, it's hard to, to separate sometimes yeah. what led to the other. Yeah. So the one thing I would also offer, Stephen, about this question is what do we do next um, or how do you deal with that, uh, is that I think you can't deal with that quandary really directly um, because we don't, to, to Ryan's point, we don't have enough resources to fix these problems. The city doesn't have the resources, but the state does. And so part of our challenge is that I don't think we have a strong enough public policy muscle. So we can, you know, I celebrate the grand bargain. I am super proud to be in the, the grand bargain, and I'm super proud of the um, philanthropic leaders uh, like Marion Nolan, Rip Rapson, and 
uh, Alberto and Darren um, for leading the way on that. Like, I'm super proud about that. But I also know that it's a lot easier to write a check than to actually move public policy. And I think that we have to really build a stronger muscle on public policy. Uh, and I think that, and that requires foundations to really lean in. I mean, you know, foundations are, foundation presidents, foundations in general, we're far more comfortable behind a podium than actually doing work on the ground, right? And so we have to figure out, in my opinion, how we equip people to really pull the resources that we need. The reason that we are in bankruptcy is because of state public policy. The reason Detroit public schools are terrible is because of state public policy. And we, you know, we um, dropped the ball on that. And even though we've done a wonderful job in Here terms she goes of, on the legislature again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. yeah. Even though we've done a wonderful job in terms of filling the stack gap um, that will pivot us towards the future, the real future is going to lie in what kind of ecosystem and conditions we create through public policy and where the dollars that we invest as citizens will land and how they create the community that we believe Detroit can be and the thriving atmosphere that will allow all people to prosper, not just, um, okay, so I was about to get myself in trouble again. <laughs> I'm stop. But I'm going to come back to that. <laughs> I am going to get in a little bit of trouble. We still got 20 minutes to go. I think we may be, we may be hearing the germs of a uh, political campaign. No, you're not. <laughs> I like the podium. Allen in 2018. Uh, Andrew, talk about how this, how this changes from a national perspective, that, that view of philanthropy and, and of philanthropy messaging. Uh, is there new pressure because of uh, what people did in the, in the grand bargain that, that, that is cropping up in other cities uh, to, to, to do this kind of thing, to get more involved in uh, you know, basic kinds of backstopping of, of government where it's fallen yeah. away? No, you know, I, I haven't detected it on, sort of on a national level. I think it's in some ways you're more likely to detect it in a community like this where you've created an expectation and then you're also in contact all the time with the folks who are involved. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, it, it is true. It's like, how do you tell the story that you're not going to do it again? Well, I guess just not, not by, by not doing it again. But, it, you know, it is tough because it also, you know, there are a number of, of tensions it points to. I mean, you know, I generally think in approach to communications is that, you know, like if you have a crisis or bad news or situation to deal with, you know, you face it, you deal with it, but then you can't keep going and pushing back against something. All you can do is just know what you want to do in terms of good work, continue to do that good work. So, I mean, we haven't thought about it so much about this bigger existen existential question about the bankruptcies, but we were certainly concerned that um, people in Detroit would feel that the money we devoted to the bankruptcy was, would be taken away from other Knight Foundation projects. And we have tried, and we tried to stress, and tried to show in our work here since then that actually, there's actually, we're probably investing in Detroit actually at a higher level now, outside of the grand bargain than we were before, and there hasn't, we haven't rolled it back. Uh, I think we want to take some questions from the audience. We have a microphone, a roving microphone, but, uh, and I'll try to see uh, who has their hands up so we can get the mic to you. Uh, are there questions for our panel? Stephen, is the mic is be. being located? Can I just... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just sort of <laughs> provoke just a little bit. Um, <laughs> my sense is that um, the... Uh, the complexity of being drawn into such a highly visible political process as we were in the grand bargain 
uh, created a sort of a certain set of expectations around what we could and couldn't say. I mean, the judge was really clear that we couldn't communicate to residents, we couldn't communicate to pensioners, we couldn't communicate to creditors. It would blow the entire thing up, and he was right. He gave us all sorts of examples of things that um, the media wrote about that really undermined his negotiating position. But I think Tanya really raises an important issue of, you know, when you sort of remove those bumper rails, um, and you don't have that kind of message discipline, how do you sort of frame these issues? And, I, and it, to sort of weave in um, uh, the other two comments, I think we actually are in the business of uh, municipal policy every day, every hour. You know, whether it's philanthropy creating a land trust, whether it's philanthropy creating a land use plan, whether it's philanthropy trying to work with state transit authorities to create a new regional transit, I mean, it is constant. And I think the question is sort of not so much will we backstop, but what is the nature of the roles and the relationships and how do those get recalibrated after an event like the bankruptcy? I would argue you don't go back to the traditional command and control way of running city government. And I think to Mayor Duggan's enormous credit, he hasn't. I mean, he has really looked to a much more distributive form of civic leadership, you know, calling on Tanya to really in many ways shape the entire educational conversation with lots of, lots of civic players, looking to other folks to help uh, shape a small business conversation or a land use conversation. So I, I think how we communicate as foundations and how we perceive our roles is fundamentally different than it was uh, seven or eight or nine years ago. And I know for our staff that's proved to be a real challenge because you know, you're, you're not government, you're not yeah. the private sector, but you're behaving a lot in ways that look often like that. You're well, sort of shape-shifting. And the question I always get about this is, well, who holds, who holds you guys accountable, right? Uh, if, if I elect someone to the legislature or a mayor or a governor who doesn't do what, uh, what I think is in my best interest, I can vote against that person. I can try to find somebody uh, who's doing it? Uh, who's doing it differently? I don't have that kind of mechanism to to, to hold philanthropy. In, or or in Dan Gilbert. Or right. Dan Gilbert, who's uh, right. you know a big it, private investor here in the city. Right, but I, I also would say I agree with that, and I um, you don't have the ability to hold philanthropy accountable, and in a lot of ways, philanthropy acts like acts a little bit like an oligarchy. Um, but what I would say is that I think that race and class exacerbates this, right? So, um, Especially in Detroit. It's, well, I, it exacerbates it everywhere. I, I did a talk for the Baltimore grant makers a, a mm. few months ago, and a young person came to do a poem, and his poem was basically in it was a line about, like, why are these white foundations telling us what to do in our black communities? That was the intent of it. it wasn't, I obviously didn't get it right because it wasn't poetic. Um, but, but part of it is, is that you know, I don't think that we really tackle these issues in a strong enough way. And so, you know, luckily in the Grand Barkin, you, know, you had African American foundation presidents that were involved. But let me be clear. That didn't change the racial or socioeconomic challenges of it. If you're running for Darren, whatever, a $10 billion foundation or however big his foundation is, 
you really don't seem that black, right? Like, <laughs> they, I don't really, I, my complexion tell you that I don't even really look that black. So people are not, I mean, I, I'm joking about it, but people are not relating that and saying, yes, I have representation there. Um, they feel still very disconnected yeah. from these institutions because of the way that the institutions invest and who they invest in and, uh, and whether or not they're communicating, whether or not our communication arms are communicating to the grassroots or not. So those kinds of things get exacerbated, which I think creates um, challenges for us all as we go and do our work. And, and it's not just with the grand bargain, it's with all kinds of work. I, you know. Uh, we all get painted, and you know, I've done things that paint philanthropy terribly as well, um, but that issue I think we have to hold up and we have to investigate and figure out, like, how are we going to solve these problems? How are we going to respond to these problems? And what I think people are really saying is not necessarily who's holding them accountable, but who the hell are they? Right. And why do they get to have a say on what the bankruptcy looks like? I've been living here, I've been paying rent, I mean, I've been paying my taxes here for 30 years because I've owned a house here. I got more stake here, you know, when you look at it percentage-wise than these institutions and the people who leave it there, and they get more say than I do. Like, those are the real issues. Like, let's break it down that people are, that's what they're worried about. It's not about whether philanthropy is accountable, but we don't know you but you purport to uh, represent me or represent the Or to interest. decide what happens in my life. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, questions? There we go. Um, I think that uh, what these foundations and uh, that you folks have uh, done so far is just great, and uh, I applaud you really for doing this, but do you feel like philanthropy in the long run is willing to make the kinds of investments in Detroit, the 20 years longer investments that need to be made to make the real difference over time? You bet. <laughs> Great question. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to, to be flippant. I mean, I, ab absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget in our board meetings early on after I came, uh, I had a trustee who was just insistent on knowing what the end game or the takeout game was. You know, when will we exit? When, when will we have uh, enough uh, to show that, that we don't have to work here in anymore? And I, I, I simply said that, that just doesn't work. When you're, when, when you're of a community, you stick with the community over the very long term. Kresge has been, in one way or another, in Detroit for almost 90 years, and we're going to be here, I hope, another 90 years. And so we absolutely have got to take sort of a long-term view. And I think that in some ways sort of frees us. You don't want to be academic about it, but you can also take a longer view and try to create investments that may not come to fruition for five or eight or even 15 or 20 years. And I think that that is sort of our philosophy. Steve, can I lift up? Sure, the, go ahead, Ryan. One of the newer foundations, um, the Ralph C. Wilson Foundation, is an interesting one to think about and talk about in our community here. It's the former owner of the Buffalo Bills, Mr. Wilson, who set this up uh, uh, maybe a year ago. They sort of um, decided to go public with what they'll be doing, which is spending out an endowment of about $1.2 or so billion dollars over a uh, 10 to 20 maybe year period. So this idea of wanting to be, and they'll articulate that catalytic in change by not necessarily existing in perpetuity, but by leaning in in a big and in a bold way. Um, an interesting model to think about as a new um, a version of change that may be more, uh, more common. These experts would know more than I would there. I, I'll lift up one other thing about the Ford Foundation. 
great discussion when they were sort of in town last week about how Rip mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but essentially both of their big engagements have been reactive here. One in response to the Mike Cox lawsuit in a way, kind of lifting up some of the tensions Rip spoke to about them leaving and disinvesting after hardworking Detroiters uh, built that wealth here. Um, the second being the grand bargain, a reaction to the city entering bankruptcy. Now uh, a thoughtful period where somebody like Darren is taking a moment and took some time this last year to do that, step back, and the next action to not be a reaction, but to be a thoughtful engagement that is hopefully long-term, serious in nature, but from their uh, value sets with their strategic sort of approach. And that's what I think is the fascinating moment we're in now, which is that pause where there's some optimism, there's a tremendous amount of challenges, and what is now? And there's some really interesting successes uh, that, that we're not necessarily lifting up here because they're maybe small and not as sexy and, and easy to understand as the big, but on public safety, uh, things on health that we're doing, things in neighborhoods that are happening that are really interesting, but I'm interested in that, that model as well, is what's coming in that thoughtful pause next, as well as these that are gonna spend out, how are they gonna spend out that capital in a bold, catalytic way and where? The one thing that I would add to that question is, you know, I'm kind of like, of course we are um, part of, you know, that this, the long and hard investments, we're all committed to it, and Rip lifted this up before, because we were committed to it before the grand bargain. Um, most of the things that have happened in this city and most of the things that are coming to fruition that most of us are really proud of was because we were doing it during the financial crisis in the, uh, that the country was going through and Detroit went through it even before the country. We were working deeply and uh, hard on those issues together. Um, and I don't think that we have any intention to walk away from that hard work. Um, uh, it, Detroit foundations are just as gritty and kind of have the same level of perseverance <laughs> as the people here as well. And then the last thing I would say is that, you know, I think that Rip was being a bit modest. Um, Rip really, I think, um, there were lots of foundations like Skillman and uh, others who were deep involved in Detroit because it was who we were. It's like our DNA. Um, but Kresge is in Detroit and it's been connected to 90 years, but not um, in the way that they are today. And I think that RIP, in my opinion, with Kresge, created a pathway to show how you do work in your hometown when you're a national foundation. And most of you, if you live in communities and you have national foundations there, you know they don't really usually get it. Um, uh, it's not, you know, most of the hometowns don't really like them <laughs> because there is this detachment from it. And I would say that Rip led that way. And I think that um, Kresge's example of that has actually been a great example to other national foundations who have roots in here that are making, that's committed. So like, I, I don't have a question about whether or not Knight is gonna be at the table for the long run. I know that Knight is gonna be at the table for the long run and I know the same thing for the Ford Foundation. And that, I think, has been a transformational moment for the city of Detroit because there was a time when, um, prior to all of this work 10 years ago or so, I would get on the phone with people from national foundations and they'd say basically, and I am not joking, when you blow it up, call me. <laughs> so it, it is a different time and yeah. I think it's a different level of commitment. And I think success has helped that. Success has, you know, begat this continued commitment and aspiration for more success. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, anyone else? Okay, more questions. 
over here. Lucas Held, Wallace Foundation. Thank you for taking us behind the scenes in this really inspiring moment. I wanted to pick up on Rip Rapson's comment that you needed a way to talk about this that transcended the uh, poles of art and pension and ask you about this phrase, the grand bargain, and how that came to be, because it strikes me as something that is very clever in its in the range of activities that it encompasses to the almost historic magnitude of it with the word grand. And lastly, this notion of bargain, which is something that implies it took a while to get to and one doesn't want to upset the apple cart. Um, so wanted to ask you about the origin and also ask you, um, in light of um, Tanya's point about the legitimacy issue, whether in calling attention to the magnitude of the agreement that in a way this does trigger questions of both legitimacy and also follow-up action. Thank you. <laughs> There's a lot it's in a, that question. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated. Yeah, and we only have six minutes, so um, take it away, Rip. <laughs> I'm trying to. <laughs> I asked Judge Rosen about the origin of the term. It, that, that's, yeah. yeah, go ahead. That, quick, quickly, to the origin of the grand bargain, we had thought on a prep call actually that Judge Rosen came up with that. I asked him this uh, two weeks ago. He said no. Yeah. He said it actually came from John Gallagher, he thinks, yeah. on the Free Press, and that's who put it in the first line of the story. Yeah. came up on a call, a background call, call before that, but that was really the news who put that out. But he was afraid of the term. He thought it was too grandiose. It also reminded him of the um, John Boehner and President Obama used the term for a deal that fell apart. So right. he actually wanted to stay away from it a little bit, but that was the press side. The news actually had yeah we had a free press free press news. sorry the news were <laughs> lower, lower lower but we case. had a, i mean we had a hard time at the i mean at the paper we knew that this was sort of taking shape uh and and that uh that judge rosen was convening uh, foundations together we thought it had to be to to help uh, pump pump money into the bankruptcy and we, we we just needed a way to describe it is what i remember because no one was talking to us uh, about it, and we want to start writing about it. And so, uh, grand bargain was what what uh, I remember sort of taking shape as uh, this way to sort of deal with the pension issue, deal with the art, and sort of everybody gives a little to get us all through it. Uh, I think it's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure we've been fully responsive to your question, but I, I don't. I think your 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 point though was having spent a lot of time with Judge Rosen. I think he was acutely aware of the pressure cooker he created by, by sort of putting this broad machinery in place. He worried about it all the time. Uh, and, and actually, he's working on his book. You guys really ought to read it. It's, yeah. It will be fascinating will. because he was dealing with some of the most cutthroat creditors on the planet. Uh, he was dealing with these very complex issues of health and foregoing certain kinds of benefits. And they were all in this swirl. And in many ways, the $370 million that foundations put on the table, which became $850 million when you threw in the state and the, and the DIA, as large a number as that was, ultimately just became leverage money because we were dealing with $18 billion of debt. And so the way that this was reconciled and pushed around uh, was something really, I don't use the term lightly, it was really genius. Yeah. 
and uh, Rosen, Judge Rosen, I think has a really great story to tell. But I think you're right. He was really aware that he had raised the stakes uh, to almost sort of that's a perfect way to put that. That the money, the bar, the money that was going in the bargain was used to leverage settlements with everybody else and get us through uh, the bankruptcy. Uh, and and that was Judge Rosen's Absolutely. doing. Other questions? I think we have time for one more. No? No more? All right. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank our panel. And thank you guys for being here. Thank you. That was really nice of you. Yeah, but still, it's nice. Thank you.